If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Gaurav Kataria. He is the VP of product over at Intello. He is also a guest lecturer at Stanford. Up until last month, he was the head of data science and growth at Google Cloud. He holds a PhD in uh, computer security risk management from Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome to the show, Gaurav. Hi, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is wonderful. I really appreciate to be on your show and having this opportunity to talk to your listeners. So talk to me about, let's start with uh, definitions. What is artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence, as the word suggests, starts with artificial. Uh, at this stage, uh, we are in this mode of creating an impression of intelligence, and that's why we call it artificial. Uh, what artificial intelligence does is it learns from the past patterns. So you keep showing the patterns to the machine, to a computer, and then it'll start to understand those patterns. And it can say, every time this happens, I need to switch off the light. Every time this happens, I need to open the door and things of this nature. So you can train the machine to spot these patterns and then take action based on those patterns. Uh, a lot of it is right now being talked about in the context of self-driving cars. Uh, when you are developing an artificial intelligence technology, you need a lot of training for that technology uh, so that it can learn the patterns in a very diverse and broad set of circumstances to create a near complete picture of what to expect in the future. And then whenever it sees that same pattern in the future, it knows from its past what to do, and it'll do that in the future. Artificial so, intelligence is not built. Uh, sorry, go ahead. So that definition or the way you're thinking of it seems to preclude other methodologies in the past, which would have been considered AI. It, it precludes expert systems, which aren't trained off data sets. It, it precludes classic AI, where you try to build a model. You, your definition really is about what is machine learning. Is that true? Do you see those as synonymous? Uh, I do see uh, a lot of similarity between artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, you are absolutely right that artificial intelligence is a much broader term uh, than uh, just machine learning. Uh, you could create an artificially intelligent system without machine learning by just writing some heuristics, uh, and we can call it like an expert system. Uh, in today's world right now, there is a lot of intersection happening in the field of AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. And the consensus or an opinion of a lot of people in this space today is that techniques in machine learning are the ones that will drive the artificial intelligence forward. Uh, however, we will continue to have many other forms of artificial intelligence. Just to be really clear, um, well, let me ask a different question. That, what, what you just said is kind of interesting. You, you say, we've, we've happened on machine learning, and it's kind of our path forward. Do you believe that something like a general intelligence 
is an evolutionary development along the line of of what we're doing now is it is it that we're going to get a little better with our techniques a little better a little better a little better a little better and then one day we'll have a general intelligence or do you think general intelligence is something completely different and will require a completely different way of thinking thanks for that question i would say uh, today we understand artificial intelligence as a way of extrapolating from the past we see something in the past and we draw a conclusion for future based on what the pattern we have seen in the past the notion of general intelligence assumes or it presupposes that you can make decisions in the future without having seen those circumstances or, or those situations in the past uh today most of what's going on in the field of artificial intelligence and in in the field of machine learning is primarily based on training the machine based on data that already exists uh in future i can foresee a world where we will have generalized intelligence uh but today we are very far from it uh, and to my knowledge most of the work that i have seen and i have interacted and the research that i have read uh, speaks mostly in the context of training the systems uh, based on current data current information so that it can respond uh, for similar situations uh, in the future but not anything outside of that So humans do that really well, right? Like we're really good at transfer learning. You can train a human with a data set of one thing. You know, say this is an alien grog and show it a, a drawing and it could it could pick out a photograph of that. It could pick out one of those hanging behind a tree. It could pick out one of those standing on its head. Is that how how do you think like we do that? I know it's a, it's it's a big question, but how do you think we do it? Is that a machine learning Is that something that you can train a machine eventually to do solely with data or are are we doing something there that's different? Yeah, uh so you asked about transfer learning. So transfer learning is we train the machine or train the system for one set of circumstances or one set of conditions and then it is able to transfer that knowledge or apply that knowledge in another area and it can still kind of act based on that learning but the assumption there is it there is still training in one set of requ- uh, environment in one setup and then you transfer that learning to another new area so when it goes to the new area it feels like there was no training and the machine is just acting like uh, without any training with all general intelligence but that's not true because the knowledge was transferred from another data set or another condition where there was training data uh, so i i would say transfer learning does start to feel like or mimic the generalized intelligence but it's not generalized because it's still learning from one setup and then trying to just extrapolate it to a newer or a different setup so how do you think humans do it do you or let me try the question in a different way does everything you know how to do everything a human knows how to do by age 20 something we learned from seeing examples of data could you machine learn could a human be made be thought of as a really sophisticated machine learning algorithm uh, that's a very good a very good point 
I would like to think of humans as all of us as doing two things. Uh, one is learning. Uh, we learn from our experiences. And as you said, like from going from birth to 20 years of age, we do a lot of learning. Uh, we learn to speak. We learn the language. We learn the grammar. And, and we learn the social rules and protocols. Uh, in addition to learning, or let me say separate from learning, humans also do another thing which is humans create where they, there was not a learning or repetition of what was taught to them. They create something new, as the expression goes, create from scratch. This creating something from scratch or creating something out of nothing is what we call human creativity or innovation. So humans do two things. They, they are very good learners. They can learn from even very little data. But in addition to being good learners, humans are also innovators and humans are also creators and humans are also thinkers. The second aspect is where I think the artificial intelligence and machine learning really doesn't do much. The first aspect, you're absolutely right. I mean, humans could be thought of as very advanced machine learning systems. You could give it some data and it'll pick up very quickly. Uh, in fact, one of the biggest challenges in machine learning today, or uh, in the context of AI, the, the challenge for machine learning is it needs a lot of training data. Uh, if you want to make a self-driving car, experts have said it could take billions of uh, miles of driving data to train a car to be able to do that. Uh, the point being, with a lot of training data, you can create an intelligent system. But humans can learn with less training data. I mean, when you start learning at the age of, when you start learn to drive at the age of 16, uh, you don't need a million miles to drive before you learn how to drive. But machines will need millions and millions of miles of driving experience before they can learn. So humans are better learners and there is something going on in human brain uh, that's more advanced than typical machine learning and AI models today. Uh, and I'm sure the state of artificial intelligence and machine learning will advance where machines can probably learn as fast as humans. Uh, and it will not require this much training data that, it's require, that is required today. Uh, but the second aspect of what a human does, which is create something out of nothing or out of scratch, the pure thinking, the pure imagination, uh, there, I think there is a difference between what a human does and what a machine does. By all means, uh, go explain that. Because I, I have an enormous number of guests <laughs> on the show who aren't particularly impressed by human creativity. They think that it's, it's kind of a party trick. It's just kind of a hack. There's nothing really at all, all that interesting about it that we just like to think it is. So I, I'd love to talk to somebody, uh, uh, who, who thinks otherwise, who thinks there's something positively quite interesting about human creativity. Where do you think it comes from? Sure. So I would like to kind of consider a thought experiment. Uh, so imagine that uh, a human baby was taken away from civilization, uh, from middle of San Francisco or Austin, a big city, and put on an island all by herself, like just one human child all by herself on an island. And, and that child will grow over time and will learn to do a lot of things. 
and the child will learn to create a lot of things on their own and that's where i'm trying to take your imagination consider what that one individual without having learned anything else from any other human could be could be capable of doing could they be capable of creating a little bit of shelter for themselves could they be capable of finding food for themselves there may be a lot of things that human will be able to do and we know from the history of our uh, kind of civilization and the history of mankind humans have invented a lot of things i mean even basic things like creating fire and creating a wheel to much more advanced things like sending rocket ships into the space so i do feel that humans do things that are not just learned from the behavior of other humans humans do create completely new and novel things which is independent of what was done by anybody before them who lived on this planet so uh, i definitely have a view here that uh, i i am a believer in human creativity and human ingenuity and uh, innovation where humans do create a lot of things and it is these humans which are creating all the artificial uh, intelligence systems and machine learning systems so, so i would never count count out human creativity so somebody arguing the other side of that would say well no she's on this island it's raining and she sees a spot under a tree that didn't get wet or she sees a fox go into a hole when it starts raining and therefore she that's a data point that she was trained on she sees birds flying down grabbing berries and eating them so it's just training data from another source it's just not from other humans we saw rocks roll down a hill and we generalized that to ah round things roll around rock rolls uh think i mean that it's all just training data from the environment it doesn't specifically have to be human data so what would you say to that no absolutely i think you you're giving very good counter examples and there is certainly a lot of training and learning uh, but if you think about sending uh, a rocket to the moon uh, and you say okay so did we just see some training data around us and created a rocket and sent it to the moon uh, it's there it starts to become harder to say that it's a one to one connection from one training data to uh, sending a rocket to the moon uh, there are much more advanced and complicated things that humans have accomplished than just finding shelter and creating a tree or finding uh, rolling rocks so humans definitely go way further uh, in their imagination than any simple example that i could give uh, would uh, illustrate that point fair enough so and 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 we'll move on to another another issue here in just a minute but but i find this fascinating so is your contention that the brain is not a turing machine that the brain behaves in 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 fundamentally different ways than a computer in yeah than a computer um i'm not an expert on how human brain or how any uh, mammal brain actually behaves so i i can't comment on all the technical aspects of how does a human brain function uh, i can say from observation that humans do a lot of things that machines don't do and it's because humans do come up with things uh, completely from scratch they come up with ideas out of nowhere whereas machines 
don't come up with ideas out of nowhere. Uh, they either learn very directly from the data, or as you pointed out, they learn through transfer learning. So they learn from one situation and then they transfer that learning to another situation. So I often ask people on the show when they think we'll get a general intelligence and they, the answers I get range between five and 500 years. It sounds like, not to put any words in your mouth, you're on the further outside of that equation. You think we're pretty far away. Is that true? Uh, I do feel that it'd be a further out uh, on that dimension. In fact, what I'm most fascinated by, and I, I kind of would love your listeners to also think about this, is we talk a lot about human consciousness. We talk about how humans become creative and what is that moment of getting a new idea or thinking through a problem uh, where you're not just repeating something that you have seen in the past. Uh, and that consciousness is a very key topic that we all think about very, very deeply and we try to come up with good definition for what that consciousness is. If we ever create a system which we believe can mimic or show human consciousness level uh, behavior, then at the very least, we would have understood what consciousness is. Today, we don't even understand it. We, we try to describe it in words, but we don't have perfect words for it. Uh, and with more advances in this field, maybe we will come up with a much crisper definition uh, for consciousness. And well, that's my belief and that's my hope that we should continue to work in this area. And uh, many, many researchers are putting a lot of uh, effort and thinking into this space. And as they make progress, whether it is five years or 500 years, we will certainly learn a lot more about ourselves in that process. So to be clear, though, people actually, there's, there's widespread agreement on what consciousness is. Like the definition itself is not at issue. The definition is it's the experience of the world. It's qualia. It's, it's, it's the difference between a computer sensing, measuring temperature and a person feeling heat. And so the question, you know, becomes how could a computer ever, um, you know, feel pain? Could a computer feel pain? That would, if it could, then you can argue that that's a, a level of consciousness. What people don't know is how it comes about. And they don't even know, I think to your point, what that question looks like scientifically. So trying to parse your words out here, do you believe we will build machines that don't just uh, measure the world, but actually experience the world? Yeah, I think when we say experience, it is still uh, lower level kind of feeling where you are still trying to describe the world through almost like sensors, uh, sensing pain, sensing temperature, sensing light. Uh, if you could imagine where all our senses were turned off, so you were not getting external stimuli and everything was coming from within. And you, could you still come up with an idea? on your own without any stimulus. And that's a much harder thing that I'm trying to understand. Like, as humans, we, we do try to strive to get to that point where you can come up with an idea without a stimulus or without any external stimuli. For machines, that's not, that's not the bar we are holding, holding for them. We are just holding the bar to say, if there is a stimulus, Will they respond to that stimulus? 
So just one more question along these lines. At the very beginning, when I asked you about the definition of artificial intelligence, you replied in with, you were talking about um, machine learning and you said uh, that the computer comes to understand, and I wrote down the word understand on my notepad here, something. And I was going to ask you about that because you don't actually think the computer understands anything. That's a colloquialism, right? Correct. Uh, so do you believe that someday a computer back. can understand something? Uh, I think for now, I, I will say computers just learn. Uh, understand, as you said, it has a much deeper meaning. Uh, learning is a much more straightforward. Uh, you have seen some pattern and you have learned from that pattern. Uh, I, whether you understand or not is a much deeper concept. But learning is a much more straightforward concept. And today, with uh, most of our machine learning systems, all we are expecting them to do is to learn. Do you think that there is a, quote, master algorithm? Do you think that there is a machine learning technique uh, that can do, unsuper that in theory, that we haven't discovered yet, can do unsupervised learning? Like you could just point it at the internet and that uh, it could just crawl it and end up we'll use the word understand again, it'll end up figuring it all out. It'll understand it all. Do you think that there is a, an algorithm like that? Or do you think intelligence is going to be found to be very kludgy and we're going to have certain techniques to do this and then this and then this and then this? What do you think that looks like? Uh, I, I mean, I see it as a version of your previous question, like, is there going to be generalized intelligence? And is that going to be in five years or 500 years? Uh, I think where we are today, uh, it is the more kludgy version uh, where uh, we do have machines that can scan the entire web and find patterns, and it can repeat those patterns, but nothing more than just repeating those patterns. It, it's more like question and answer type of machine. It is a machine that uh, completes sentences. Uh, there's nothing more than that. There's no sense of understanding. There's only a sense of repeating those patterns that you have seen in the past. So if you're walking along the beach and you find a, a lamp and you rub it and a genie comes out and the genie says, I will give you one wish. I will give you vastly faster computers, vastly more data or vastly better algorithms. What would you pick? What would, what would advance the science the most? I think uh, you, you nailed the nailed the question on, uh, on the head by saying that these are the three things we need to improve machine learning: better data, uh, more data. We need more computing power, and we need better algorithms. Uh, the state of the world, as I experience it today within the field of uh, machine learning and data science, uh, usually our biggest bottleneck, the biggest hurdle, is data. Uh, we would certainly love to have uh, more. Com computation power, we would certainly take much better, faster algorithms. But if I could ask for only one thing, I would ask for more training data. So there's a big debate going on about the implication that this these technologies are going to have on employment. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know the whole setup, uh, as does as do I'm sure all the listeners. What's your take on that? I think as a whole, our economy is moving into uh, much more specialized jobs uh, where people and humans are doing something which is more specialized than something which is repetitive and very kind of general or simple. 
machine learning systems uh, uh, are certainly taking a lot of repetitive tasks away. So if, if the task that a human repeats like 100 times a day, uh, those simpler tasks are definitely getting automated. But humans, and coming back to our earlier discussion, uh, do show a lot of creativity and ingenuity and innovation. A lot of jobs are moving in the direction where we are relying on human creativity. So as a whole, for the whole economy and for everybody around us, I feel the future is pretty bright. Uh, we, are, we have an opportunity now to apply ourselves to do more creative things than just repetitive things. And machines will do the repetitive things for us. Uh, and humans can focus on doing more creative things. And that brings more joy and happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment to every human than just doing repetitive tasks, which become very mundane and not very exciting. You know, Vladimir Putin famously said that whoever, I'm going to paraphrase it here, whoever, you know, dominates an AI will dominate the world. And there is, there is this view that, that almost wants to weaponize the technology that, uh, that views it strategically, you know, in this kind of great geopolitical world we live in. Do you, do you worry about that? Or do you like, oh, well, you know, every technology, metallurgy, you can say that about metallurgy, that whoever controls metallurgy in the future. Or do you think AI is something different and it really will reshape the geopolitical landscape of the world? So, I mean, as you said, every technology uh, is definitely weaponized. And we have seen many examples of that. And, and not just going back a few decades. I mean, we have seen that for thousands of years where a new technology comes up and as humans, we get very creative uh, in weaponizing that technology. Uh, so I do expect that uh, uh, machine learning and AI will be used for these purposes. Uh, but like any, any other technology in the past, no one technology has destroyed the world. Uh, and as humans, we come up with ways and interesting ways to still reach an equilibrium, uh, still reach a world of uh, peace and happiness. So while there will be challenges and AI will create problems for us in, in the field of uh, uh, weapon technology, but I think uh, I would still kind of bet that humans will find a way to create equilibrium out of this disruptive technology. And this is not end of the world, certainly not. You're no doubt familiar with the European initiatives that when, when an artificial intelligence makes a decision that affects you, it gives you, it doesn't give you a home mortgage or something like that, that you have a right to know why it did that. And you're, you're an advocate, it seems, that that, that that is both possible and desirable. Can you speak to that? Why, why, do you think that's, why do you think that's possible? So if I understand the intent of your question, uh, the European Union and, and probably all the jurisdictions around the world have put in a lot of thought into A, protecting human privacy, and B, making that information more transparent and available to all the humans. And I think that is uh, truly the intent of the European regulation, as well as similar regulation in many other parts of the world, where we want to make sure we protect human privacy and B, we give human an opportunity to either opt out or understand how their data or how that information is being used. 
And I think that's that's definitely the right direction. Uh, so, I mean, to if I understand your question, I think that's what Intello as a company is looking at. That's what every company that's in the space of AI and machine learning is also looking at creating that respectful experience where if any human's data is used, it's done in a privacy-sensitive manner and, uh, and the information is very transparent. Well, I, I think I might be asking something rather poorly, it seems, slightly different. And we'll use Google as an example. If, if I have a company that sells widgets and I have a competitor and they have a company that sells widgets and there's 10,000 other companies that sell widgets, and if you search for a widget in Google, my competitor comes up first, I come up second. And I say to Google, why am I second and they're first? I guess I kind of expect Google's like, oh, I don't know. It's like, who knows? It's like there's so many things, so many factors, so many, who knows? And yet that's a decision that that AI made that affected my business because it's a big difference between being number one and number two in the widget business. So... If you say no, every decision that thing makes, you've got to be able to explain why it made that decision. Uh, it feels like it shackles on the um, the progress progress of the industry. Do you comment? Right. No, I think I, I understand your question better now. So uh, that burden is on all of us, I think, uh, because it is a it is a slope or a slippery slope where. Uh, as artificial intelligence algorithms and machine learning algorithms become more and more complex, uh, it becomes harder to explain those algorithms. So that's a burden that we all carry. Uh, anybody who's using artificial intelligence, and nowadays it's pretty much all of us, if you think about it, which company is not using AI and ML? Everybody is using AI and ML. And it is a responsibility for everybody in this field to try to make sure that they have a good understanding of their machine learning models and artificial intelligence models that you can start to understand what triggers certain behavior. And every company that I know of, and I can't speak for everybody, but based on my knowledge, is certainly thinking about this because you don't want to put any machine learning algorithm out there that you can't even explain uh, how it works. So we may not have perfect understanding of every machine learning algorithm, but we certainly strive to understand it as best as we can and explain it as clearly as we can. Uh, so that's a burden we all carry. You know, I'm really interested in the notion of embodying these artificial intelligences. So, you know, one of the use cases is that someday we'll have robots that can uh, be caregivers for elderly people and can talk to them and over time learn to laugh at their jokes and learn to tell jokes like the ones they tell and uh, emote when they're telling some story about the past, can, can kind of emote with them and, oh, that's such a beautiful story and all of that. Do you worry, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing to build that kind of technology that blurs the lines between a system that as we were talking about earlier, truly understands as opposed to a system that just learns how to, let's just say, manipulate uh, the person. Yeah. I think right now my understanding is more uh, in the field of learning than just than full understanding. So uh, I'll speak from kind of my area of knowledge and expertise that uh, our focus is primarily on learning. 
uh, understanding is is something that uh, i think we as uh, the community and researchers would definitely look at but as far as most of the systems that exist today and most of the systems that i can foresee in the near future uh, they are more learning systems they are not understanding systems but even a really simple case when i um you know i have the you know a device from amazon that if i say its name right now it's going to you know start talking to me right and yeah. when my kids come in to the studio and ask a question of it uh once they get the answer they can tell the answer is not what they're looking for they they just tell it you know to be quiet and and you know i have to say it you know i don't know it it, it somehow doesn't sit right with me to hear them cut off something that sounds like a human like that so something that would be rude in any other thing and so do, does that worry you is that teaching am, am i just an old fuddy duddy at this point and that that's or or does that somehow numb their empathy with real people and they would be more inclined to say that to a real person now uh, i think you're asking a very deep question here as to do we as humans change our behavior and become different as we interact with technology and i think yeah. some of that is true uh, some of that is uh, true for sure like when you think about sms when it came out like 25 years ago as a technology and we started texting each other the way we would write text was different than how we would write handwritten letters uh, and it became i mean by the standards of let's say 30 years ago the texts were very impolite Uh, they would have all kinds of spelling mistakes they would not address the people properly uh, and they would not really end with proper punctuation and things like that uh, but as a technology it evolved and it is seen as still useful to us and we are as humans we are comfortable with adapting to that technology uh, so every new technology whether it is a speaking uh, speaker or texting on cell phone will introduce new forms of communication new forms of interaction uh, but a lot of human uh, decency and uh, respect comes from us not just based on how we interact with a speaker or on a uh, text pad a lot of it comes from much deeper rooted beliefs than uh, just an interface so i do feel like while we will adapt to different interfaces a lot of human decency will come from other from much deeper place than just the interface of the technology so you hold a phd in computer security risk management and i want to say that when i have guests on the show and sometimes i ask them like what's your biggest worry or is security really uh, you know an issue or all of that they all say yes like they're like okay we're plugging in 25 billion iot devices none of which by the way can we up, upgrade the software on so you're basically you know cementing in whatever security vulnerabilities you have that uh and and you know all the the hacks that get reported in the in the industry i mean in the uh, news and stories of election interfering and all this other stuff do you believe that the concern for security around these technologies is in the popular media overstated understated or just about right i would say it's just about right i think that this is a very very serious issue uh, 
uh, as more and more data is out there and more and more devices are out there, as you mentioned, a lot of IoT devices as well. Uh, I think the importance of this area has only grown over time and will continue to grow. So it deserves the due attention uh, in, in this conversation, I mean, in our conversation, in any conversation. And I think by uh, bringing it to limelight and drawing attention to this topic and making everybody think deeply and carefully about this uh, is the right thing. Uh, uh, and I believe we are certainly not doing any fear mongering. I mean, all of these are justified concerns and we are spending our time and energy thinking about them in the right way. So, and just talking about the United States for a moment, because I'm sure all of these problems are addressed at a national level differently in different countries. So just talking about the U.S. for a minute, how do you think we solve it? Do you just say, well, we keep, we just keep the spotlight on it and we, and we hope that the businesses themselves see that they have an incentive to make their devices secure? Or do you think that, you know, the government should regulate it? Or do you think that we need, like, how, how would you solve the problem now if you were in charge? Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I think uh, I'm not in charge, but I do feel uh, there are three constituents in this. Uh, first is the creators of technology, like when you are creating an IoT device or you're creating any kind of software system. Uh, the responsibility is on creator to think about the security of the system they are creating. The second constituents are the users, which is the general public and the customers uh, of that technology. They put the pressure on the creator that uh, the technology and the system should be safe. So if you don't create a good system, a safe system, you will have no buyers and users for it. So people will vote with their feet and they will hold the companies and hold the creators of technology accountable. And as you mentioned, there is a third constituent and that is the government or the regulator. And I think all three constituents have to play a role. Uh, it's not any one uh, stakeholder that can uh, decide whether the technology is safe or good and is it good enough. Uh, I think all th it's an interplay between the three uh, constituents here. So the creators of technology, which is companies, uh, research labs, academic institutions, uh, they have to think very deeply about security. The users of technology definitely hold uh, the creators accountable and, and the regulators play an important role in keeping the overall system safe. So I would say uh, it's not any one person or any one entity that can create the world safe, the responsibility is on all three. So let me ask Gaurav, the person, a question. So you've got this PhD in computer security risk management. What are some things that you personally do that uh, you do because of your concerns about security? For instance, like, do you have a piece of tape over your webcam? Are you like, I would never hook up a webcam, or I never use the same password twice, or, or, or what? What are some of the things that you do in your online life to protect your security? Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned all the good things like uh, not to reuse passwords and things like that. But one thing which I have always mentioned to, uh, to kind of my friends, my colleagues, and I would love to share it with your listeners is think about two-factor authentication. Uh, two-factor authentication means in addition to password, 
you're using a second means of authentication. Uh, so if you have a banking website or a broker website, uh, or for that matter, even your email uh, website, email system, uh, it's a good practice to have two-factor authentication where you enter your password, but in addition to your password, the system requires you to use a second factor, and the second factor could be they send you a text message uh, on your phone, and it gives you a code, and then you have to enter that code into the website uh, or into the software. So two-factor authentication is many, many times more secure than one-factor authentication, which is you just enter password, and passwords can get stolen or breached and hacked. Uh, two-factor is a very good security practice, and uh, almost all companies, or most of the uh, creators uh, of technology are now supporting uh, two-factor authentication. So the world is definitely moving in that direction. So up until uh, November, you were the head of data science and growth at Google Cloud, and now you're the VP of product at Intello. So two questions. One, um, what in your personal journey in life, wh why did you decide now was the time to go do something different? And then what about Intello got you excited? Tell us the Intello story and, and what that's all about. Sure. Uh, thanks for asking that. Uh, so Intello is in the space of recruiting automation. Uh, the idea is that recruiting candidates has always been a challenge. Uh, I mean, it's hard to find the right fit for your company. Uh, long ago, we would put classified ads in the newspaper, and then technology came along, and we could post jobs on our website. We could post jobs on job boards, and that certainly helped in broadcasting your message to a lot of people so that they could apply for your job. But, but when you are recruiting, people who apply for your job is only one means of getting good people to your company. You also have to sometimes reach out to candidates who are not looking for a job, who are not applying for a job on your website or on a job board. Uh, they're just happily employed somewhere else, but they are so good for the role you have that you have to go and kind of tap on their shoulder and say, would you be interested in this new role, in this new career opportunity for you? Uh, Intello creates that experience. It automates the whole recruiting process. It helps you find the right candidates who may not apply on your website or apply on a job board, who are not even looking for a job. It helps you identify those candidates and it helps you engage with those candidates. So reach out to them, tell them about your role, and see if they're interested about your role to then engage them further in the recruiting process. Uh, all of this is powered by a lot of data and a lot of AI, or as we discussed earlier, a lot of machine learning. And so I've often thought that what you're describing, so. AI has done really, really well at playing games because you've got these rules and you've got points and you have winners and all of that. Is that how you think of this in a way that uh, you have successful candidates at your company and you have unsuccessful candidates at your company and those, those are, are, are good points and bad points and so you're looking for people that look like your successful candidates more or like kind of at an, at a, at an abstract conceptual level, how do you solve that problem? Um, I think you, you're definitely describing the idea where 
not everybody is a good fit for your company and some people are a good fit. So the question is, how do you find the good fit? And how do you learn that who is a good fit and who is not? So traditionally, recruiters have been combing through lots and lots of resumes. I mean, if you think back like decades ago, a recruiter would have probably a hundred or a thousand resumes uh, stack on their desk and they will go through each one of them to say whether this is a fit or not. And then about 20 years or so ago, uh, we had a lot of keyword search engines kind of developed, right? Where it was like, oh, as a human, you don't have to read the thousand resumes. Uh, let's just do a keyword search. And let's say if any of these resumes has this word, and if they have the word, then it's a good resume. If it doesn't have that word, then it's not a good resume. That was a good innovation uh, for scoring resumes or finding resumes, but it's very imperfect. Uh, because it's susceptible to many problems. It's susceptible to the problem where resumes get just stuffed with keywords. Uh, it is susceptible to the problem that there is more to a person and more to a resume than just keywords. And today, the technology that we have in identifying the right candidate is just barely keyword search. Uh, on almost every recruiting platform today, what a recruiter would do is like, they'll say, I can't look through a thousand or a million resumes. Let me just do a keyword search. Intello is trying to take a very different approach. Intello is saying like, let's not think about just keyword search. Let's think about who is right fit for a job. And when you as human look at a resume, you don't do keyword search. Computers do human uh, keyword search. I mean, in fact, if I were to uh, challenge you or propose that, uh, I put a resume in front of you for an office manager you are hiring for your office. Uh, you will probably scan that resume. You will have some heuristics in mind. You will look through some information and then say that, yes, this is a good resume or not a good resume. And I can bet you, you are not going to do a keyword search on that resume saying like, oh, it has the word office and it has the word manager and it has the word furniture in it. So it's a good resume for me. Uh, so there is a lot that happens in the minds of the recruiters where they think through, is this person a good fit for this role? And we are trying to learn from that recruiter experience where they don't have to look through hundreds and thousands of resumes and nor do they have to do keyword search, but we can learn from their experience of which is a good resume for this role and which is a, not a good resume for this role to find the, that pattern and then surface the right candidates, and we take it a step further. We reach out to those candidates, engage those candidates, and then the recruiter only sees the candidates that are interested. So they don't have to kind of think about like, okay, now do I have to do a keyword search on a million resumes and try to reach out to a million candidates? All of that process gets automated through the system that we have built here at Intello and the system we are further developing. So at what level kind of is it training? For instance, if you have, you know, Bob's house of plumbing across the street from Jill's house of plumbing, and they both are looking for an office manager, and they're both 27 employees, do you say that their pools are exactly the same? Or is there something about Jill and her 27 employees that's different than Bob and his 27 employees, it means those they don't necessarily get one for one the exact same candidates. 
Yeah, so historically, most of the systems were built where there was no uh, fit or contextual information uh, and no personalization. It was uh, whether Bob does the search or Jill does the search, they would get the exact same search results. Uh, now we are moving in that direction of really understanding the fit for Bob's company and really understanding the fit for Jill's company so that they get the right candidate for them. Uh, because uh, one candidate is not right for everybody uh, and one job is not right for every candidate. It is that matching between the candidate and the job. And I mean, another aspect to kind of think about why uh, using a system is sometimes better than just relying on one person's opinion is if it was one recruiter who was just deciding who's a good fit for Bob's company or Jill's company, that recruiter may have their own bias. Uh, and whether we like it or not, many times uh, all of us tend to have unconscious bias. And this is where the system or the machine tends to have a much better performance than a human because it's learning across many humans rather than learning from only one human. If you were learning by copying one human, you will pick up all of their bias. But if you learn across many humans, as opposed to a single person, you tend to be very unbiased, uh, or at least you tend to kind of average out as opposed to being very biased from uh, one recruiter's point of view. So that's another reason why this system performs better than just relying on Bob's individual judgment or Jill's individual judgment. It's interesting. It sounds like a really challenging thing because as, as you know, you were telling the story about, you know, you're looking for an office manager and there are things when you're scanning that you're looking for. And it's true that they're most often some form of an abstraction because if, if my company is uh, an office manager for an emergency room, I'm looking for people who have been in high stress situations before, or if my company is, um, you know, a law firm, I'm looking for things that have people who have a background in things that are very secure and the privacy is super important. Or if it's a daycare, I, I maybe want somebody who's got a background, things dealing with, with, with kids or something. And so they're always kind of like one level abstracted away. And so I bet that's really hard to, to, to extract that knowledge. I could tell you, oh, I need somebody who's like, can, can handle the pace at which we move around here. But for the system to learn that sounds like that's, that's a real challenge, not beyond machine learning or anything, but it just sounds like that's a challenge, is it? Yes, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a challenge, and we have um, kind of just recently launched a product called Intello Envoy uh, that's trying to learn what's good for your situation. So what Intello Envoy will do is it'll find the right candidates uh, for your job posting or for your job description, send it to you and then learn from you as you accept or reject certain candidates. And you say that this candidate is overqualified or it comes from a different industry. As you categorize those as fit and no fit, it learns. And then it over time starts sending you candidates that are much more fine-tuned to your needs. Uh, but the whole premise of the system is Initially, it's trying to find information that's relevant for you, where you are looking for office managers. So you should get office manager resumes and not people who are nurses or doctors. Uh, so that's the first element. And then the second element is, let's remove all the bias. Uh, because as humans, we may say that 
well, we want to have only males or only females. Uh, let's remove that bias and let's have a system be unbiased in finding the right candidate. And then at the third level, if we do have more contextual information, as you pointed out, uh, we are looking for experience in a specific situation. Then we can fine tune and tell onward to get the third degree of personalization or the third degree of matching. I want to look for people who have expertise in childcare because your office happens to be the office for a daycare. Then there is a third level of tuning that you need to do at the system level. So Intello Envoy allows you to do that third level of tuning. It'll send you candidates, and as you approve and reject those candidates, it'll learn from your behavior and fine-tune itself to find you the perfect match for the position you're looking for. You know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but when I talk to folks on the show about is there really this like huge shortage of people with technical skills in artificial, you know, with machine learning backgrounds, they're all like, oh, yeah, it's a real problem. Um, I assume, you know, and, and so to them, it's like, I want somebody with a machine learning background and, oh, and they need to have a pulse. Other than that, I'm fine, as long as they, you know, are alive. So is that your experience that people with these skills are at, right now in just like incredibly high demand? Uh, you, you're absolutely right. There is high demand for people in machine learning skills. Uh, but I have been building products for many years now, and I know that to build a good product, to make uh, any good product, you need a good team. It, it's not about one person. Uh, and intuitively, we have all known that, whether you were in machine learning or finance or medical field or healthcare, you know it takes a team to accomplish a job. Uh, when you are working in an operation theater on a patient, it's not only the doctor that matters, uh, everybody else. It's, it's the team of people that make uh, an operation successful. The same goes for machine learning systems. When you are building a machine learning system, it's a team of people that are working together. It's not only one engineer or one person or one data scientist that makes all of it possible. So creating the right team and creating a team that's working well, that uh, respects each other, builds on each other's strengths, uh, versus creating a team that's constantly just fighting with each other. You will never accomplish uh, anything. So you're right. There is a, a high demand for people in the field of machine learning and uh, data science, uh, but every company and every project requires a good team. And it is you, you want the right fit of people for that team rather than just individually good people. So in, in a sense, it, Intello may invert that, that uh, setup where you started when you post a job and you get a thousand resumes. You may be somebody like a machine learning guru and get a thousand you know, companies that want you. So will, will that happen, do you think, that people with high-demand skills will get heavily recruited by these systems uh, in, in kind of an, an outreach way? Uh, I think it comes back to if all we were doing was keyword search, then you're right. I mean, one resume looks good because it has all the right keywords. Uh, but we don't do that. Uh, right. When we hire people in our team, uh, we are not just doing keyword search. We want, we want to find the person who's the right fit for the team. The person who has the skills, attributes, and and understanding, like it may be that you want someone who has experience in your industry, 
it may be that you want someone who has worked in a small team uh, or you want someone who has worked in a startup before so i think there are many many dimensions in which uh, candidates are found by companies and a good match happens so i feel like it's not only one candidate who gets surfaced to thousand companies and has thousand job offers uh, it is usually that every candidate has the right fit every role has the right need uh, for the right candidate and it's that matching of candidate and the role uh, that creates a win-win situation for the entire market well i do want to say you know you're right that this is one of those areas that we we still do it largely the old fashioned way somebody looks at a bunch of people and you know makes a gut call and so i think it's a, i think you're right on that it's an area that technology can be deployed to really increase efficiency and and what better place to increase efficiency than building your team as you said so Absolutely. i guess that's it we're running out of time here uh i would like to thank you so much for being on the show and uh and wish you well in your endeavor thank you baron thanks for inviting me and thank you to your listeners for humoring us If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice, and in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.